even though for the most part we see large ISPs not being trusted, smaller ISPs are a different it's a different situation. And particularly in rural areas, there may be no place else to who is doing this work. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Uh, this is Christopher Mitchell at the Broadband Communities Summit in Houston, Texas, where we are talking today with Angela Seifer from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. As well as Matt Larson, CEO of Vistabeam. It's only been four years, man. <laughs> it's only been four years since you were on this show, but you won an award. Um, so congratulations. You got the Cornerstone Award for something we're going to be talking about here. Um, this is, uh, uh, there was a little interaction on a panel where Angela is up there talking about uh, the importance of, uh, of doing this work. And, uh, and Matt was basically like, wah, 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 which is how I, <laughs> how I think of you. <laughs> you pointed out that you are doing this really great digital work. You have, um, you have the empowerment centers, which I'll ask you to describe in a second, but you're making it work. And a lot of the money to support this is not aimed to be even eligible for for-profit providers. Yeah. I mean, we're like, like regular WISP operators typically do. We're going out and trying to figure it out ourselves. And we did get some assistance from Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft gave us a little bit of a grant to help subsidize the uh, initial salary of our person that we needed to work with, and we're making it work so far. And the next challenge is going to be figuring out how to make it scale and make it really useful for all the people in our communities. Now, let's just tell us what that full is, because you described it on that wonderful video program, Connect This, uh, which people should definitely tune into, connectthisshow.com, past episode, maybe like 64, 65, 66, something like that. Um, But for people who are sadly missing that show. What are you doing with the Empowerment Centers? So our Empowerment Center is basically, we took an office that we had in one of our rural towns and we put in a set of workstations for digital skill training, uh, for public access for people to use, for job interviews, what, whatever, whatever they need. Uh, we put in a video conferencing enabled meeting room where uh, organizations can come in and they can use the video conferencing facilities or just use the meeting room facilities. And then we have a customer service representative who has digital navigation training. And so people come in and we have somebody that can help them with a portable connectivity program. We can help them get working on one of the PCs so they can get some digital skills training. We have uh, digital skill programs that Microsoft provided that we can get them started on if they want to work with it. And we can let their organization use the meeting room to have uh, teleconference enabled meetings. Um, we're also doing a trial with a telemedicine uh, device manufacturer that is going to have their device there is looking at potentially having uh, a nurse come in and let people come in and use the device. And we're going to explore whether we can become a telehealth access point where people can, can use our facilities for telehealth visitation. So, that's a lot of a lot of stuff, but that's we're we're kind of throwing it out there to see what really works. And when you're not doing all of that, you are operating in like forty five thousand miles square miles at this point. You are a wireless company that's been around since Nikola Tesla was playing around with yep. wireless a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I knew the original Tesla. <laughs> that's <laughs> what it seems like some days. But yeah, it's uh we we've uh I, I've been doing internet service in these rural areas for twenty five years now. And uh, I used to be the young guy at broadband shows, and now I'm the old guy. So <laughs> that's how it goes. But uh, yeah, we cover some very rural areas, you know, parts of 
Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, and now we even have a few customers in Kansas just across the border. We get a tower down pretty close, so uh, we cover a lot of territory. It's uh, it's a big job, but you know we followed the demand. Right. When people needed service, we answered the call. And you have a very high rating among your customers. Um, now I want to jump over to Angela. So Angela, uh, you're on the panel and you're talking about this, and I feel like you know you've been on a roller coaster. Uh, it's been a lot of new things. And here you have someone coming up and talking about how they're a for-profit ISP that's trying to do th- what goes through your head uh, when you're when you're hearing about this use case. Uh, I felt the need to be upfront with Matt that the NDIA does not suggest that the federal money go to for-profits for digital equity work because we haven't seen that turn out well in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt and I now, since then, are now best buddies. I'm extremely impressed with the work that that they're doing and want to make sure that NDIA is being super supportive because I think what Vistabeam is doing is actually very similar to what we've seen in tribal lands where the ISP is providing that digital navigator service because they are the ones trusted by the local community. And I think that's an adjustment that we have to keep making even though for the most part we see large ISPs not being trusted. Mm-hmm. Smaller ISPs are a different, it's a different situation. And in a particular, in particularly in rural areas, there may be no place else to, to who is doing this work. And so being able to have Vistabeam doing what they're doing is incredibly exciting. And so we are now on a path of figuring out how NDIA can be supportive. And this is a challenge with policy because this is what we see, right? In the Lifeline program, it is open to for-profit. And so there are unscrupulous people who have business models where they, they roll up into a parking lot and they basically give people something they don't need, they don't know how to use, and they start collecting a federal benefit for them. It's yes. horrible. Yes, yes. It's incredibly frustrating um, because the the methods used often are free phone or free device. That free phone and that free device is really not good quality, but free phone, free device, free tablet usually seems like a sweet deal until you actually try to use it and then it's not so sweet. But they have then taken your $9.25 benefit from Lifeline and now we're seeing similar with the Affordable Connectivity Program. Um, so fortunately, there are a lot of good folks like Matt out there helping folks understand what the Affordable Connectivity Program is. So the numbers receiving a real benefit are on the rise. When when this was being discussed before Angela had a chance to respond, my first thought was that, Matt, you should just create a nonprofit because I know that you're not busy enough. And creating a 501c3 is super easy and you could just run everything through there. Yeah. What's another thing to keep track of? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, we, we did talk about actually had an idea going back several years to try and do something like PCs for people. One of the things we noticed was... They stole your idea. No, no, they didn't. <laughs> no, they, I, I was not the only... Per, I, I'm, I recognize <laughs> ideas are out there. You know, you just grab them out of thin air, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of way back in the day, we used to buy a lot of off-lease computers to build our access points. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things we noticed is like technology companies oftentimes, you know, they they recycle through their equipment, they buy new stuff every four or five years, and then they auction off the old stuff. And, you know, I think what PCs for People is doing is great. We, we work with them on uh, getting devices, but uh, I thought it would make sense to reach out to like the local banks and hospitals and stuff. It's like, hey, instead of auctioning this stuff off, why don't we create a nonprofit? You can donate it to a nonprofit, get a tax benefit. We can take this stuff, refurb it, and 
give it to people. And I think that's a, that's a concept there. There might be ways to localize that a little bit better, mm -hmm. or maybe I, I just didn't have the time to work on that. Honestly, I find that very easy to believe. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think that's the sort of thing if we do, if we're thinking about things at a local level, finding those local resources instead of being dependent on, you know, somebody else to do it for you. Um, I'm a big believer in, in self-reliance, you know, small town people would, I think much rather try and figure out how to take care of themselves and, Keep it flowing locally. Use local people, use local resources, and uh, do that because the unfortunate truth, a lot of broadband is extractive, pulling money out of local communities. Mm -hmm. I want to see stuff that keeps the money and the effort and the jobs in the local communities. Yeah, that's the thing that people don't always realize is that despite the fact that there's you and a thousand or more other local ISPs that do a good job, uh, like 90% of Americans get their internet access from the big cable company or the big telephone company. Yeah. So um, it is very extractive. So what is the solution then, Angela? Well, you two were talking about um, what you can do in this situation. We've laid out the problem. So how do we move forward to make sure that this model could be supported and, and is able to be sustainable and expanded? Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about was Matt was already on a, a process of thinking about who we could partner with in the community because the funds could flow through that partner and then they can be a, a consultant or contractor on that. But also part of what we were talking about was how to pull Matt's team who are doing this work into NDIA's community mm -hmm. because there's also a learning that our community can do about the work that Vistabeam is doing and how they're structuring it. And so there's that learning back and forth. There's the learning of what are those that have digital navigator programs, particularly in rural areas, what they can share with with Matt's team, but also what Matt's team can share about how they've structured things and how that can influence other communities. One of the projects NDIA has right now is our National Digital Navigator Corps that was specifically we set up to to support local and tribal digital navigator programs. There's 18 grantees in that funded by Google.org. And so we now know more than we did before. And so there's a lot of learnings that can go on and we want to make sure that we are with that work, bringing in others who are doing digital equity work in rural communities, because it's not, there hasn't been a lot of it to, to this point. Right. And so now that it's starting to happen, we need to make sure folks don't feel alone. When we first started NDIA, that was the thing we heard at our annual conference mm -hmm. was I found my people. And so I think now we, we can't stop finding our people. Did you get a sense that this is doable? Did you have any new ideas as you're talking through this, Matt? You know, one of the ideas that did not occur to me that I, I think I picked up while I've been here at the show was uh, I was on a panel with William Wells from, uh, I think it's A-Steam in Kansas City. It's impressive. Everyone keeps talking. I was going to try and grab him for a show here. Yeah. And I started seeing his slides. And here are these inner city youth putting wireless stuff up on buildings mm -hmm. and they're down there with their laptops programming with stuff. And I was like, that's great. That's exactly what we're doing. No, that, but let's just pause for a second. And I don't want to say this, like someone didn't do their job, but like it's Kansas city, Kansas city has three different providers in, in most, almost the entire city, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about Kansas city and, um, and those providers are competing and yet there is still a need for this. Absolutely. And what I, what I realized and I was like, man, we have a lot in common with those guys. In fact, I went up to Williams afterward. I was like, Hey, can I, can I send some farm kids down to work with you guys for a week? And you can send some guys out to out the middle of nowhere with us and see what we're doing. I think it would be great to have that exchange because what I find out is like, man, we're, we have a lot of, there's a lot of similarities in mm -hmm. what we're doing. I think that extends to a lot of the tribal places too. Um, I would love to figure out, you know, how to get like some of this exchange 
going on. Cause one of the things I've noticed with smaller ISPs, especially, um, coming from the wireless side, uh, we started out and we kind of had to build our own community. And so there was a lot of, uh, support. We had a lot of communication with each other about, okay, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. And mm-hmm. we we're very big on data sharing. I've noticed bigger ISPs are not that way. Uh, everybody kind of has their own little secret sauce, what they want to do. And I would, I think it makes more sense to try and figure out how to let's open source some of this stuff. You know, I want to share the stuff we're doing with our empowerment center with NDIA. Hopefully we can share stuff together and figure out, you know, here's the thing that works mm-hmm. uh, good for, all, you know, come up with some best practices and get these communities that you normally wouldn't think that inner city kids and tribal kids and farm kids would interact, but here's a great opportunity to get some interaction going and, you know, figure out how to make things better all the way around. When Gigi Sohn was speaking earlier, she said, I really hate that urban rural divide. I agree. I also really hate that urban rural. We all have issues, right? So Mm -hmm. let's stop pitting people against each other. Yeah, we should force everyone to move into cities. (laughs) (laughs) That's what she was saying, I think. (laughs) But I, so Matt, if, if we can figure out this exchange, I think that would be amazing. And I would love to highlight that at NDIA's annual conference, Net Inclusion, because I think that's the kind of learning that we want to highlight, right? We're bringing folks together. We're not like, oh, your problems are worse than your problems. That's ridiculous. We all have issues, but we can often share some solutions regardless of where we live. And if net inclusion grows the way it's been before, you'll go there because the entire country will be there pretty soon. Hearing the story about the youths and, uh, and that exchange reminds me that we all start somewhere. And I feel like we have this need for more people that have these technical skills and people that are focused on digital equity. And uh, there's a woman who is in this circuit and she has a son who is now um, winning rodeos. And he, when he was younger, uh, had um, uh, through a weird combination of things, had been able to spend a few time with a world with a world champion guy who did this sort of thing, I guess. And that guy took him under his wing a little bit. And like, you know, that doesn't happen. He probably doesn't get into it in the way he does. And and giving people an opportunity to see how this stuff works, like, no one, like no one outside, if you walk around these streets out here and you ask them, like, how could you get into working on the Internet? They wouldn't even know what you were talking about. But showing them like how to work on outside plant, how to do tower climbing, how to like, you know, be a network tech and, uh, and work in a knock. Like these are all things that like just open up the possibilities for young people to get a sense of, of how they could actually do it and see themselves in that. And that's really exciting. But also like the digital equity training and, and doing that work just so people have a sense of what their opportunities really are. Yeah, I, I can tell you from firsthand experience, um, in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, you're probably not going to get a lot of respondents if you put out a, that you have a job for an experienced network tech mm-hmm. or somebody to learn how to climb a tower. So we have had to do a lot of basically training our own army. And so we have just absolutely taken that. One of the big things we've done is we've created processes and we've create, created uh, a training regimen for, for people that we bring on board. And the opportunities are tremendous in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, for I, I lived in uh, a more urban area once a long time ago. I think I, I was like 25-ish. And what no, I found in this urban area. That what's that? You were not that young. Well, you, know, you were born 30. I back think. in my day. <laughs> wow, I'll tell you, get off my lawn. You know, it, it was. Uh, but what I found in, in an urban area, it was like so competitive. There was always somebody better. And there was always somebody cheaper. And there was this fight, you know, and you had to like, you know, they would all, they would employers could choose who they wanted. You know, if you're in an environment where, you know, somebody's got to work with you, that, that creates a lot more opportunity. So I can tell you like my main IT guy right now, who is, you know, has just been a tremendous asset to our company. 
He was manager at Subway. Was his previous job. Mm-hmm. My like number two network guy right now, who is just this young guy that's just been absorbing knowledge and is just so smart. Um, we hired him to basically break down boxes and unpackage equipment and put mm-hmm. it on a shelf. And we gave him that opportunity to grow. Um, we've got, I think, four kids of people that are employees that have worked for us for a long time. Their kids are now working for us. Uh, one of them was this farm kid, and he came in and just he started out basically sweeping and organizing the shop and just getting better and better, you know. And and the guys are like, man, I wish we had access to him more. And uh, he graduated, and Monday he came to work at 8 a.m. because he didn't have to go to school anymore, and they gave him the keys to his truck mm-hmm. and said, this is, this is your truck. You're now a tower tech, and you're going to go through tower tech training. And so we're developing this program internally to go out and train these guys. And we've taken guys who used to work on center pivots are now climbing towers. And we're giving them a quality job. Um, you can make a lot of money climbing towers if you want to ruin your quality of life. And go travel all around the country mm-hmm. and work terrible hours and be away it's from your super family. super uncomfortable. It's hard on your feet. Oh, it's awful. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and we created something. So we've got people that have families. They get to come home and spend time with their family. They've got great quality of life. Yeah, if you want to make money, go work for AT&T or Verizon. I guarantee you won't be able to do it for very long because they'll burn you out. But we provide an environment where people can be successful. It's a good paying job, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And we're growing our own army. It's so much more resilient, so much more powerful to do it that way than to just try and bring in mercenaries. I'd know? like to know about the person who goes the other direction. You brought them in as a vice president, but they decided they prefer to just focus on cleaning and organizing the warehouse. Uh, I, those are hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on the financial side, you know, we could... I, I need somebody really is really good at like cleaning and organizing financial stuff because that's been uh, <laughs> that's been a challenge. Um, I'm curious about a comment that that you had made as we were uh, talking with other folks out in the hallway, Angela, about the role for like larger companies um, and like whether they should it would be a good role for them to be stepping up into doing more of this work uh, in terms of the digital equity work uh, or if they should rely on partners and others. They should rely on partners. So larger companies are not known for being trusted mm. by those their customers. And because of that, it does not make sense for them to run a digital equity program. Um, so what Comcast and some of the others, quite a few of them, AT&T, Verizon, Charter, all of, all of the, the big kids have um, programs where they fund digital equity programs. They should do that. They should do more of that, frankly. They should all do more of that. Um, but they should not run those programs themselves in large part because trust is an incredible piece of all of this. Technology is confusing. It's intimidating. Plus, you don't trust your internet service provider. All of that wrapped up to in together means you have to find the entities that are trusted. And if that's not you, then you have to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that happened during that panel I thought was interesting is Dick from Spot On Networks, who we've talked about the work that they've done in bringing high quality uh, access to public housing in New York City. He talked about how they hired people that were already in the area to do this work. And my first reaction was I can see that you would get some of those great people you talked about, you know, like the person that you got who was unboxing things. Um, you also run into people who aren't that good. And some of them do great interviews. And so I'm just curious, did you react to that and think that's scary to be trying to hire more people locally to do digital equity work? Well, we have kind of a hire slow, fire fast philosophy when it comes to bringing people on board. Um, Which is, I think, 
the smart and best thing to do for all parties involved, frankly. Right. You know, because uh, we, we want to make sure that somebody we hire is somebody that we're, we're, we're providing. We're going to put a lot of resources into trying to get this person trained and to kind of educate them the way that, that we operate. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's really hard is making sure somebody's going to be a cultural fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we've got a couple of core values in there that we are a team. We have each other's back. We respect our customers. We empower our communities. Those are some of our core values. And people generally will self-select themselves out. Um, got very low tolerance for people that want to throw other people under the bus, uh, especially inside the company, or want to point fingers. Uh, we're big believers in accountability. Um, you're not going to get in trouble. If you, if you mess up and admit it that you made a mistake and go for help, mm-hmm. you're not going to get in trouble. You can get in trouble if you try and sweep it under the floor or blame somebody else. Or you do it for the fifth time. You do it once or twice. We understand. We all exactly. But it, and it, it is hard to figure that out from an interview because interviews go a certain way. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of having having a way to correct somebody's actions if they, they aren't living up to the culture and getting that culture to kind of build. And that's what we found is like, man, once once we got that critical mass of everybody kind of believing in the mission, that made a big difference, you know. Enron had company values. They had you know, <laughs> well-developed corporate paid for company values while they were running around doing nefarious things. Yeah. All you over can read Harvard case studies about how great they were. I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. But man, once you, once you get everybody believing in that and you can filter your core values, filter everything through that, that helps. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part, honestly, if you find somebody that's got a work, good work ethic, I would much rather work with somebody that was green and didn't have any skills at all, but has good, work ethic and meets our core values and develop it. We've had wonderful success doing that. I think there's all kinds of opportunity to reach out to some different populations. Uh, one of my good friends, it's one of our phone techs. Uh, he worked with, uh, the foster care program. And so he had to deal with kids that were aging out of foster care and didn't have anything to do. I, I, it's like, I want to reach out to that population and see if we can provide something for them or veterans to come back. They might have some technical skill training, but they are having a hard time finding something that works for them. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some great opportunities out there to try and reach out to some different populations that uh, kind of get ignored by regular employers and see if we can we can do that and give them a, give them a path. You know? Right. So, Angela, I'm curious, um, when Dick made that comment, I felt like that's following the best practice, right? We're increasingly trying to find ways of compensating people for what we often call lived experience, right? And and making sure that people who are participating in this, particularly those who don't have a lot of luxury time, where they are uh, able to uh, say, oh, I'll just, you know, take some time off work and like, it's all good to, to do this work, that they're being compensated for it. Um, but it's also a challenge. And so I'm just curious how you reacted to that statement. It's amazing, right? Like, again, I feel like, uh, Matt, can I be your best friend? Uh, <laughs> right? Like the work, the work that he's doing, that Vistabeam is doing. What I was thinking about when Matt was talking was the values and how NDIA, even though we're a 501c3 nonprofit, we have a mission statement, it was still changed the, the culture at our growing fast organization when we set our values. And we hadn't done that previously we did that um what a year and a half ago 
and it it is something we keep coming back to and that we're able to say um, like quality is one of our values so if if we are not doing quality work we are not meeting our values mm -hmm. um, we are you know we are inclusive we are diverse we are community driven and it helps to make decisions so it's really fabulous to hear Matt talking about how Vista Beam operates similarly in choosing employees and then how those employees are integrated into that community and to that value system. And I can imagine that a municipality that's running its own municipal network, technically a nonprofit, may be a good fit for this, might be a terrible fit for this, depending on the culture of the organization and whatnot. And so it isn't really a dividing line between profit and for-profit, nonprofit and for-profit. It's really about the culture of the entity Unfortunately, very difficult to make laws and procurement around that. Around values. Yes. <laughs> Check here. If you, right. <laughs> if you, are you honest? Are you a team player? Then you can right. have this grant. Yeah. So I was wondering, do you have any guidance for others who might be thinking about this? Like, I mean, as an example, I can imagine that some munis uh, are in a position where they actually have a significant amount of, of cash flow uh, and, and they just aren't sure how to use it. But for them to do this kind of a model of, of being able to uh, set up centers, have some computers, do some trainings, hopefully in partnership with others. Uh, you know, you said you're working with Microsoft. AARP is a good partner in many cases to try to bring in uh, some training. So I, I actually think Matt offered us two different models. He offered us the model of um, training local folks to then in, into their jobs and then helping them continue to move up within the company. So that's that's incredible. And then there's a, a separate model of providing that digital equity, digital inclusion programming through his company to the local community members. Um, and I, so I think those are both models we would want to see replicated, and which is why it's very important that he's on the show, that ILSR is lifting him up, and we will do NDIA will also do our best to understand the model better so we can lift up and put in some of our materials because the more folks see that and I think you're totally right Chris it doesn't matter if you're 501c3 government for profit we can we can all operate in a way in which we are doing the best for our communities in honorable kinds of ways and sometimes the structure and the culture is not such that it would encourage that kind of situation. So we wouldn't want that digital inclusion programming to incur in that local government. The other thing that we've seen recently is that when local government or any government, when that leadership changes, when there's a, a change there, then those who had been doing some work, it could be like, that was the last person's thing. That's not my thing. So we're not going to do that anymore. So that's why it's, it is important to have those partnerships outside of government. Yes. Any last thoughts, Matt? Talking about uh, partnership with munis, I think there's an interesting possibility here because, you know, just because uh, Muni is providing service in town doesn't mean that somebody lives outside of town isn't going to come in and look for help. And so one of the big things for us is we keep the, the empowerment centers there for everybody. They don't have to be a Vistabeam customer. I we'll can come by anybody. and check it out. Anybody could come by <laughs> and check it out. Uh, although you might be on a, you know, we might have a watch list a deal for like <laughs> certain people that, yeah, but um you know, the other thing I, I'm kind of struck by, and I would hope that we could see more possibility of partnerships between munis and I'm not just going to say WISPs. I'm going to say alternative providers because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, there are, you know, a few thousand wireless ISPs and other alternative providers out there that I think are 
perfect partnerships for munis that to work together. Um, one of the things I found, I, I think at one point I'd heard you say something about like, if you have less than 10,000 subscribers, then a muni is going to be a little bit harder to scale. But if you could figure out how to, for, you know, especially rural environments or like certain specialized environments, figure out how to get munis and alternative providers to work together. Mm -hmm. Because I would love to have an environment where, you know, I, I, I'm very focused on wireless. We're now doing some fiber. And the thing is like getting access to capital is really difficult to do fiber and dealing with some of the big government programs is a giant pain. You know, we're so busy building, you know, we're out putting out the, the, the digital divide fire, you know, one hot spot at a time, you know, trying to, trying to knock everything out. And we don't have time to get, a lot of them don't have time to go through all these government programs. But if a muni has the, the, the time and the resources to go out and go through a program needs, needs to find somebody to partner with to figure out the ISP side. Look at the local ISPs. I would love to partner with munis in or around my service area where we could leverage, you know, our existing tech support, our existing network management, all this other that we already have in place. And I'm willing to sacrifice losing some of our fixed wireless customers. If we could turn them into fiber customers and we pay the muni for access to the network, in order to be able to do that. I believe Ammon Idaho, the wireless ISP up there is the biggest user of the network. Yeah. I think talk about things like that. We can partner with communities on doing digital equity uh, applications and making it accessible for everybody. That's the other thing is, you know, fixed wireless is very good about accessibility. Number one, getting it to everybody and then working with fiber, you can build fiber out under uh, later on when it makes sense. Oh, there's so many good opportunities to work together that I, I think that's what I'm really excited. I'm not as excited about the big government money and bead to everything. I think it, it brings a spotlight onto places where we can do things that maybe exist outside that program that are going to have an equal, if not larger impact. Well, and Gigi noted that there's money in RDOF and it would be amazing if there was a non-bureaucratic way of distributing that in some of these areas uh, to fill in holes. Uh, counties uh, often have some access to funds, so it wouldn't even necessarily have to be cities. But I think counties, there is some history in Minnesota of this where they have a non-bureaucratic way of doing a loan or working with you. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities there. We've had fantastic experience with revolving loan funds. Mm -hmm. So when I first started, we got a grant for creating jobs. And I've gone back to this. There's one fund in particular in Scotts Bluff. They have a few million dollars in their revolving loan fund. We've gone back to that, I think, five or six times. And now it started out with 5000 now it's $10,000 for every job you create. And then you can get a loan of a similar amount at low interest to get the facilities and whatever you need, vehicles or computers or whatever, to get those people going. And that has been tremendous. We paid back into that fund. It wasn't a, it wasn't a hand. I mean, the grant was a grant, but we have to keep those jobs in place for five years. So it pays off. I'd like to see more programs like that, mm -hmm. you know, that have that kind of an impact. Um, CARES Act was fantastic for us. The money came out. Uh, there was like a short timeline. We made, we made a huge improvement to our network in a short period of time. Um, we put the fire out. Yeah. You know? No, Travis has suggested something that I think is interesting and maybe ties us together as we wrap up, which is, um, an ideal program would be one in which you took WISPs, for instance. This wouldn't be the only way of distributing money, but you would take a WISP and you'd give them $500,000 or a million dollars. And you'd see, like, did they do a good job? And if they did, then you'd give them more money. 
and then you would give them more money and like they would keep like sort of scaling up a little bit and like for the ones who like screwed up or whatever you know you take some you take a loss but the benefits like the lo- the overall loss of that program are probably like, quite small compared to what we'll see of the administrative costs of all these rules that we're dealing with now and so it's, it's a different way of thinking about the loss but like that would give these wisps a chance to like really prove themselves in many cases you say give but i think there should be a combination of yeah i mean it could be of yeah. give but but also the idea of having a revolving loan fund mm-hmm. that you put the money back into it that's what's future proof yeah is if you set up something i can borrow money from it and then 5 6 7 years later if i need to go back and upgrade I'm not going to the government to try and get money. I'm going here to say, look, we did a good job. We upgraded this. It's time to refresh our equipment. We want to do a similar deal again. Go back and redo it. I like to think that the revolving loan fund and the money that you received led into your ability to now create this empowerment center and multiple more on the way because you got to a higher scale and you have a cash flow that you're able to now support that. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Great to see you again. Let's not make it four years next time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'll just invent another show so you can come back sooner. Angela, thank you. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle. Licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm